August 5th, 2018 was the day that I married my wife, Mackenzie. It was perhaps one of the best days of my life, one of the most memorable days of my life, also one of the hottest days of my life, but one of the best days nonetheless. And when and if you guys get married, one of the things that you'll come to know is that planning a wedding takes a lot of work. Planning a wedding, it takes a lot of work and a lot of dollars. So you better start saving up now. But lots of work, lots of preparation goes into the wedding day. Now, granted, I was in California for most of the preparation process, working at actually Compass Bible Church, Elisa Viejo. So McKenzie was in Ohio doing most of the prep work herself. But I still did my fair share. Maybe not my fair share, but I did a share of prep for our wedding day. I mean, everything from picking out a suit, right? I got to go to the store. I got to try it on. Sometimes you have to get it tailored. I had to uh, get a haircut, right? Can you imagine? Had to get a haircut for my wedding day. That morning, I woke up, and as you should, I took a shower first thing. Wanted to be fresh and clean for my bride-to-be, and then I shaved after the shower. My hair's all clean. My face is hopefully all clean. I get dressed in my suit, and Mackenzie's been doing far much more work than I have. Everything from uh, the the decals for our, you know, the the what is it called? The seating chart. I don't know why that's a thing. Actually, I do know why it's a thing. Weddings have a lot of drama. I don't know if you guys knew that. There's a lot of drama. If you don't invite certain people, then they're offended, even though it's your wedding day. If you sit people next to the wrong people, they're could be drama at the wedding. It's like political chess. You wouldn't believe it. It's I hated it. But anyway, so they were McKenzie did all of that. I didn't have to do any of that. She did all of the seat placements. She chose the flowers. Obviously, she picked out her dress. She had it hemmed. A lot of those details were handled by McKenzie. But I want you to imagine that it's my wedding day and I show up and I've done nothing. I mean, my hair is looking like Davis's, not cut, right? <laughs> I'm just, wow. I'm just we made eye contact, and that was dangerous. We made eye contact. Um, so, I, you know, my hair's not cut. I don't shave. I don't shower, right? I don't even show up in a suit, right? I just show up. I have uh, basketball shorts on, a T-shirt, and I'm like, hey, girl, let's do this thing. I mean, I, <laughs> her parents, and maybe especially her dad, they'd be like, I don't know. That might have even canceled the wedding. That might have been dramatic. But, I mean, they would have certainly been like, what are you doing? Like, there, there's a certain level of preparation that goes into a wedding because, really you're communicating the weightiness of what you're about to do. So you're prepa- preparing, you're planning, uh, you're really, you're going through premarital, hopefully with, with a pastor. There's all of these preparations that need to be made because of the significance of the day, right? And, and my preparation, hopefully, is in uh, is equivalent to the, the significance of that day. And I take that preparation seriously. Well, as we open to the book of Mark, we're going to find some first century Jews that were awaiting uh, the coming king, the coming Messiah. You see, all the way in the Old Testament, all over the Old Testament, there is a promise of a coming Messiah, someone who would come and right the wrongs that happened all the way at the beginning in Genesis 3.15. And not only would he come and right those wrongs, he would establish his kingdom on this earth. He would be enthroned as the king. And so the Israelites during this time, the Jews, they were excited about this day, perhaps no more important day in their lives and perhaps our lives. And they, because they were excited about that day, and because they knew the significance of what that day meant, they spent a lot of time preparing for it. And so as we open the Gospel of Mark, what I want you to see is all of the different preparations that were made leading up to the entrance of King Jesus. 
see in the opening pages of, or the opening verses of the gospel of Mark, Mark really draws our attention to the king has arrived. The things that were necessary to happen for the arrival of the king, they happened in the exact way that they were supposed to. There was prophecy fulfilled. There was a forerunner, as we'll see, John the Baptist. All of these things, the preparations were made, and the king has arrived. So with that, I want you to open up your scripture journals or your your Bibles. Mark chapter 1 is where we will be this evening. We're going to read verses 1 through 13 as we really talk about and really see Mark showcasing the arrival of King Jesus and what that means for us and what that mean, what that meant certainly for the first century audience that was reading even the, the words that Mark penned. So Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, here's what he says. He says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, I need to pause there, right? Because the gospel is a word that is perhaps very common to us, especially at Compass Bible Church. We say it all the time. We say it every week, every sermon, every time we're in small groups, the gospel's brought up. And so it's something that's familiar to us in a specific way. We think about the gospel. We think about the life, death, uh, you know, burial, resurrection of Christ and all of those things that come along with that. And that certainly is true when we think about the gospel. But actually, the word gospel, euangelion in the Greek, was a technical term that was largely secular. And it was something that uh, the Jews at this time, they borrowed from the secular world. And so what it meant to the secular world was not the good news of Jesus Christ. What it meant in a generic sense was just simply good news. And oftentimes it was used in a triumphal sense that a, a king or a kingdom would go to war against another king and another kingdom. And if they had victory in that kingdom, in that war, against that kingdom, in that war, they would come back and they would share the good news. They would share the gospel, right? The Uangelion, the, the victory celebration of what just happened. And in fact, Caesar, he is uh, the emperor during the time, the timing of this writing. He actually inscribed on some of the coins, the gospel of Caesar, the good news of Caesar, because he was one of the most powerful emperors during that time, powerful leaders in that region. And so he wanted everyone to know, I am victorious. And so when Mark says the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, this really is a royal word. It's often associated again with kings and kingdoms victories and conquests, things that were significant news that was worthy of traveling city to city, town to town. Right? They didn't have iPhones back then, so they had to send messengers. They were called heralds. They would go from town to town, and they would say, good news, good news. We have had victory in this war. We've had victory in this way. This is good news. It's a royal term. It's a technical term. So Mark says the beginning of the gospel, the victory, the good news of Jesus Christ, the son of God. That's how he opens. And really that serves as a heading, not only for this section, but also for the gospel as a whole. This is the good news about Jesus Christ, the son of God and all that he accomplishes as the king, the one who is arriving. Verse two. It says, as, is, as it is written in Isaiah, the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. See, John appeared, he's the messenger, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming 
a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now, John, he was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey, kind of a weird guy. And he preached saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water. There's an external act, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee. That's north of where John was baptizing at the Jordan. Nor- the, the, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee, uh, Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. The spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan and he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. Now there's a lot of things going on in this passage that if we're not careful readers and careful studiers of what's going on here, we're going to miss it because every section that we're about to go through is a royal procession. Every single section is about the arrival and the coming of King Jesus. And they're really, Mark saying, he's rolling out the red carpet and saying, this is the long-awaited Messiah, the one whom we have been waiting for, the one who will be king, not only over Israel, but over all of the world. Ultimately, eventually, where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. Now, it was typical during this time, like I said, when kings wanted to travel from town to town, city to city, they would send a royal messenger ahead of them to do some prep work. Now, oftentimes, they would clear physical debris. They would travel by chariot and horses. And so the messenger would literally, their responsibility was to clear the road, to clear the path, to make sure that the journey for the king was set and ready to go. But even beyond that, a royal messenger would go into the town and would make sure that the people were ready to receive the king, that their attitudes were right, right? That their households were managed and taken care of, that they were ready and waiting and excited and anticipating the arrival of the king. That was the responsibility of a royal messenger for any king really during this time. What we see in this passage is that John the Baptist serves serves as a royal messenger, someone who is preparing the way for King Jesus to come on to the scene. I want to show you this again. Let's look back at verses two and three of chapter one. It says, as it is written in Isaiah, the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face to do what? To prepare your way, to prepare the way of the king, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. See, the responsibility of John the Baptist was to go into this town in Jordan, in Jerusalem, really, and to say the king is coming. He was making preparations. He was making sure that the people were ready. They weren't going to get taken off guard. And because he was making sure that they were not taken off guard and that they were ready, he was preaching a very specific message. And we'll get to that in a second. But really, John, he was meant to to serve as a signpost that was to point to and prepare for the Savior, the arrival of 
the king. Now, when he does this, it says in Mark, Mark really just says Isaiah, the prophet, and quotes two different verses. That was a common practice, really, where the, the authors of scripture would sometimes they would quote uh, the prophet that was maybe more well known, uh, or perhaps the, the, the majority of the quotation would come from that book. So he says Isaiah, the prophet, but there's two uh, prophecies c- c- combined into one. The first one comes out of Malachi chapter 3. Verse one. So this is what Mark is doing. He's combining these prophecies. They they go together, and he's really attributing it to Isaiah, the more well-known prophet. Certainly uh, for the Israelites in, in the Old Testament, Isaiah is known as the the fifth gospel, as it's often said. But Malachi, Malachi chapter three, verse one says this: it "says Behold, I send my messenger." It sounds familiar, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is. Coming Coming, says the Lord of hosts. So that's what Mark is drawing our, our attention to as readers to this prophecy in Malachi 3. And even in Isaiah, Isaiah 40, verse 3, it says, A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And so we have this prophet, John the Baptist. He comes on the scene as a royal messenger. He goes to Jordan and he begins proclaiming a specific message for the specific purpose of saying, King Jesus is coming. The Messiah is coming and we need to be ready. See, that's an important thought for us to even wrestle with this evening as we think about King Jesus coming into our lives. He's come in a physical sense. This happened in a point in time in history. But as we think about King Jesus coming face to face with him and really wrestling with who he is and, and the significance of what he did, you need to really understand, are you prepared? Are you prepared to meet King Jesus? And that's point number one for us tonight on your outline is prepare your heart to receive the king. And remember, a king would send the messenger into that town and they would say, the king is coming. The king is coming. Make sure that you're ready. Do all that you need to do. He is on his way. And for us as well, we need to understand that the king has come and yet we need to prepare our hearts to receive the king, King Jesus, and to receive him in the way in which is ultimately going to allow us to experience a relationship, not only with him, but with God eternally for forever in, in heaven. Ezekiel 36, 25 and 26 says this, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols, I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. See, the preparations that John the Baptist is making is what Ezekiel is talking about in Ezekiel chapter 36, where we are going to be given, if we rightly respond to King Jesus, we're going to be given a new heart, a heart that receives the King with gladness, a heart that is transformed by the message of the gospel. Jesus even says in John 3, a heart that really is revived. We are born again. We are new creations. And that's the preparations that John the Baptist is making. He's preparing the hearts of the people to receive the King. And he does this in in several different ways. Uh, The first one is, as we'll see in verse 5, is is he's leading the people around him uh, to confess their sins, right? He's leading them to confession. Look at verse five with me. It says that all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, in the, in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. 
So what were the preparations that John the Baptist, this royal messenger, what were the preparations that he was trying to ensure were being made in order to be ready for the arrival of King Jesus? Well, he's saying you need to confess your sins. And to confess your sins really is to acknowledge the trajectory that you are on apart from Christ is not the right trajectory. That's what it means to confess. It means to acknowledge where it is that you stand before a holy God and to come to understand that our trajectory apart from Christ leads to nowhere but separation from God for eternity. And so John the Baptist, he comes and he says, you need to confess your sins. You need to acknowledge that your trajectory is not the right trajectory. It is wrong. It is not pleasing to the king. The king is coming. We need to confess our sins. We need to purify ourselves. We need to be ready for the king. And the same is true for you this evening. As you prepare your heart to receive King Jesus, you need to be willing and ready to confess your current trajectory. If you're not someone that has placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, Scripture would say in the Gospel of Mark opens in a, in a very rapid and in-your-face way and says you need to confess that your trajectory apart from Christ is not the right trajectory. Confession, again, is saying I know where I am and I know where I need to be. I need to change directions. I, I confess my sin before a holy God. And that is how we prepare our hearts to receive the King, to receive King Jesus. There's a second way that John prepares Jesus, uh, prepares for the arrival of King Jesus. He does it uh, by leading them to the confession of their sin, but he also, and this goes hand in hand with it, he leads them to the repentance of their sins. Repentance. So confession is acknowledging where you're at. Is saying, Lord, the trajectory that I'm on, I know that it leads to nowhere except from far away from you, from eternal separation from you, from a spiritual death in eternity apart from Christ. That's confession. Repentance, on the other hand, is saying God's way is the right way and agreeing with that and agreeing to turn from your current way and following God's way. So you're on a current trajectory apart from Christ. Confessing is saying, I'm going to acknowledge where I'm at. Repentance is saying, I know where I need to go. I need to turn and I need to follow the way that God has set for me. And that way is King Jesus. Jesus is often referred to in scripture as the way. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And so John, in preparation for the arrival of the king, confess your sins, know where you're at, and repent of those sins. Turn from them. Acknowledge that God's way through King Jesus, through the message of the gospel, is the right way. Agree with that. Turn from your sins and place your faith and trust in Christ and begin pursuing him. Look at verse four. That's where we're getting this. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So there's two things that need to happen in order to be ready for the king. There's confession of your sin and repentance of their sin. There's acknowledgement of your wrongdoing in the face of a holy God. And then there's repentance turning from that wrongdoing and pursuing hard and fast after the truth of Jesus Christ. He appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And so we have confession as a means to prepare our hearts. We have repentance as a means to repair our hearts. And then thirdly, we have submission as a means to prepare our hearts for the king. And submission really, even for John the Baptist, is he understood that Jesus was truly the king. 
that he was the long-awaited Messiah, that he was the one that they had been anticipating for hundreds of years. He was the one that he was doing all of that work to prepare for, and he submitted to that reality. Look at verse 7 with me. It says, And he preached, John the Baptist, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water. That's, a, that's an outward sign, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. That's an inward seal. So John the Baptist, he comes, confession, repentance for the forgiveness of sins. That's an outward sign of something that the Lord is doing. But Christ is going to come and he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He's going to seal you in that relationship with God for eternity permanently. And that's what John the Baptist says. We need to be prepared to submit to King Jesus. And we do that in, in several ways. First and foremost, we do that with humility. I mean, look at the words that John says in in verse 7, after me comes he who is mightier than I. Throughout the Gospels, you'll see that there was a lot of disciples of John. There was a lot of people that were like, hey, this John guy, he's kind of a big deal. We're going to follow his teachings. I mean, I was baptized by John. Who were you baptized by? Right? John is seen as kind of a big deal. And yet he's saying in in verse 7, after me comes he who is mightier than I. John knows full well that King Jesus is far more valuable, far more significant and important than he ever would be. He even says, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. Now, that doesn't maybe make sense in our current context. That was something that sometimes uh, servants, right, wouldn't even be allowed to do because it was seen as such a lowly task. It was something that you, it was like an insult to do this. And John's saying, Jesus is so valuable. King Jesus is far more significant than I am. I'm not even worthy to stoop down and stoop down and untie the strap of his sandal. He understood who Jesus was and he understood who he was in light of that. John had this humility, but he also had this reverence for the king. He had this reverence, right? He says, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. He is mightier than I. He had this reverence and this all, and ultimately this submission to Jesus as king. So if you're here this evening and you're wondering, how do I prepare for the arrival of the king? Well, John would say, confess your sins, repent of your sins and submit to Jesus as the king. Know that Jesus truly is far more significant, far more satisfying, far more life-giving than anything this world has to offer. Anything. And respond similarly to John the Baptist in humility, humbling yourself, and in reverence of the king. The king has come, and our response is preparation of that, confessing our sin, acknowledging where we're at, repenting of our sin, turning from where we're at, pursuing hard and fast after King Jesus, knowing that he truly is worth it, that he is the king. And that really is point number two on your outlines this evening, is that you need to be confident that Jesus truly is the long-awaited king. Be confident that Jesus is the Messiah. Be confident that this royal messenger, John the Baptist, he was preparing the the way for the right guy. Be confident that Jesus truly is the king. Now, it's interesting, the, the way in which Mark shows us this in these next couple of verses is perhaps not something that you would think of. It's certainly not something that I would think of, right? If I'm going to try to prove that Jesus truly is the king, I'm going to do it in a number of different ways, but certainly not in the way uh, that, that Mark draws our attention to. Look at verse 9 with me. 
This is how Mark tells us that we can trust that Jesus is the king that is worthy of our submission and our reverence. It says, in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee. Remember, that was north, so he traveled south and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Now, wait a second. We're talking about the king. This is King Jesus. He has a royal messenger preparing people for his arrival. And yet when he shows up on the scene, what does he do? He has this guy, John, who's wearing some weird, you know, stuff, eating locusts and honey. He's having this guy baptize him. I mean, what's going on? What's the significance of this? Well, let's keep reading. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son with you. I am well pleased. How can we trust that Jesus is truly the king? Well, Jesus's baptism, think about it this way. It was Jesus's royal commissioning. So a king, oftentimes, when they would be put into that office, well, there were several positions, right? Uh, prophets, priests, and king. Whenever they would be instituted in that role, uh, they would be anointed with oil. There would be a, 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 you know, a ceremony that they would go through to say, okay, they are now a prophet, they're now a priest, they're now a king, and they are going to live out their responsibilities and their duties accordingly. Jesus has the exact same thing. He has a royal commissioning where Really, we're, we're seeing he is being authenticated as the true king and is being commissioned to go and do what he is supposed to do as a king to fulfill his kingly duties. See, Jesus' baptism is God's official commissioning of his son for the work he came to earth to accomplish. That's why that's the first thing that he does while he's on this earth. That's how he authenticates himself as the true Messiah and the true king. It's his baptism. It's this ceremony. And in fact, in verse 11, it says, You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. See, this authentication, this ceremony is done by God himself. See, John was involved in it. He, he dunked Jesus in some water, but the, the ripping open of heaven, the spirit descending on him like a dove and a voice coming from heaven, this is God's stamp of approval saying, Jesus truly is the king. This is the Messiah. He says, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. And here's the most fascinating part about this whole process is not only is Jesus the king and not only is he the long-awaited Messiah, but the long-awaited king, the long-awaited Messiah, he is none other than God himself. In fact, when we read that verse in, uh, in Malachi, that's, that's really what it's, it's talking about. When we talk about those two prophecies, right? Malachi 3.1, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. The Lord is going to show up on the scene. He is going to be the one that ultimately is the king. God himself he gives his stamp of approval and he conducts this royal ceremony to say that Jesus truly is the king. He is the one that we have been waiting for. Now, the question is, why? Why does he do this? Why does baptism serve as a means of uh, his royal commissioning? What's significant about this? Well, there's two primary things uh, that I want you to know. Uh, the first is Jesus does this. He gets baptized and is commissioned in this way to fulfill all righteousness. 
to fulfill all righteousness. In fact, in Matthew chapter 3, verse 15, this is another account of Jesus being baptized by John. It says, but Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. There's a reality in which Jesus came to this earth to fulfill every aspect of righteous requirement. And that basically just means obedience to God. He came to fulfill obedience to God in the perfect way because he knew that you and I weren't going to be able to do it. And so as a part of that righteousness, a part of that obedience, Jesus comes and he baptizes, he gets baptized by John the Baptist. As one uh, commentator noted in his first act of ministry, he first shows up on the scene. What does he do? The king has arrived. The one who had no sin. Think about that. Jesus, he who had no sin, publicly identifies himself with those who had no righteousness. Think about what the purpose of baptism is. It's to signify that your old way of life was contrary to what God had for you. I mean, even think about our baptism, right? We, we get baptized and we say death to our old self, death to sin, life in Christ. And yet Jesus, someone who hasn't sinned, someone who doesn't need to be cleansed or washed by, by any sort of measure, he himself is baptized. Why is that? Because he is publicly identifying himself with those who had no righteousness. He who knew no sin and had no sin came and identified with those who ultimately had no righteousness. Or to put it another way, the sinless king, the sinless Messiah, he publicly submitted himself to a baptism designed for sinners. And that served as a foreshadowing of the fact that he would soon submit himself to death deserved by sinners. Do you understand that? That Jesus identifies with sinners in this baptism ritual, even though he was himself not a sinner. And that is a foreshadowing. That's a picture. That's a taste of what's to come later on in the gospel of Mark, that he would soon submit himself to the death that was only deserved by sinners. And so this baptism ceremony is meant to point us to that reality. And Jesus' baptism, really, it looked forward to the cross, just like our baptism looked back to it. So when we get baptized, we look back to the cross and we say, Jesus has done it. The work has been done. The, the, the victory has been won. We look back to the cross. Jesus and his baptism, he's looking forward to the cross. It's a foreshadowing of what his life would be and his purpose of coming to earth, ultimately to save his people from their sins. So why did Jesus be baptized? Well, it was to fulfill all the righteous requirements of the law. It was to perfectly obey his father. Father's will. That's the, the first thing. The second thing was to authenticate his ministry. And that's what we're talking about. How do we know that what Jesus did, what he said, what he taught, how do we know that it truly is what we should believe? Well, this baptism ceremony, this royal commissioning is something that helps us to understand that it authenticates his ministry. There's a couple of prophecies that really talk about even Jesus's baptism and the significance of it. The first one comes from Isaiah 64, 1. It says, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Does that sound familiar? In our passage, it talks about the, the sky rips open, the heavens rip open, and a dove descends in Isaiah 64.1. This happened, this was written hundreds of years prior to Jesus' baptisms. And yet it says, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. Even Isaiah 11.2 
It says, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Remember, the spirit comes descending like a dove and it rests upon Jesus. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. All of these prophecies are pointing to Jesus is the king. And just as a sidebar, I mean, we've read, I think, four prophecies already, and there's more that we could read about Jesus. And this is why there's no other book like the Bible. There's no other book that talk about the details of Jesus's life, the details of his arrival, what it would look like. I mean, even his baptism, the the sky being ripped open, the spirit of the Lord resting on him. All of these details were written hundreds of years before Jesus ever was born as a baby. And so the Bible is a reliable source for understanding who Christ is. And these prophecies, right? And Jesus's baptism is meant to point us to the reality that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah that came to save his people from their sin. Now, it's interesting. We have this royal commissioning. We have this reality in which the sky roofs open. There's a, the spirit descends on Jesus. The, the father speaks with an audible voice and says, I am well pleased with you, my son. You have done this first act of obedience. That's a commissioning. Now go and do what I sent you here to do, to live a perfect life, to die the death in the place of sinners, to rise again three days later. He says, go and do. And what is the first thing that he does? We have this royal messenger preparing the way. We have this royal commissioning. And you might think it's time to eat. It's a banquet time. It's a feast. It's a party. Let's have a good time. The king is here. But immediately, Mark says, none of that happens. Look at verse 12. It says, the spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. The wilderness is where he went. He didn't have this celebration. He didn't have a triumphal entry. He had this baptism by this obscure guy who, who served as this prophet and this forerunner, and then immediately is driven into the wilderness. Verse 13 says, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. King Jesus, the first act that he did after he was crowned, so to speak, after his baptism, was not to celebrate, was not to say, bow down and worship me. He went out in isolation and did battle with Satan himself for 40 days being tempted by Satan. And we know by other accounts, he, he was fasting, so he, he had no food, probably very little water. The wilderness was a, was a barren place. It was a wild place. And so he goes out there by himself and is battling Satan. I mean, what's, what's going on here? Well, what we need to know about the gospel of Mark is that Mark gives us this picture of Jesus as the suffering servant. Perhaps more than any other gospel, all throughout the gospel of Mark, we're going to see this recurring theme of Jesus the king, he's a servant. Jesus the king, he came to suffer. Jesus the king, he came to make sure that you would be saved, and he did it by suffering, and he did it by serving. And this is one of the first acts that we see of that reality coming true. And so our response to, to that, uh, to that reality, to Jesus just immediately be thro being thrown into the wilderness, to Jesus being a king that would suffer on our behalf, we should have something that is stirred in our heart. This is a king unlike any other king. Uh, this is a king that the world has never seen before up until this point. And our response should be point number three tonight is to cherish King Jesus's willingness to suffer for you. Cherish King Jesus' willingness to suffer for you. 
Now, there's something about the, the imagery of a king, right, charging first into battle that, that always, it makes me emotional, honestly. I, I don't know why. Uh, there's something about all of those movies. I mean, even think about Lord of the Rings. If you're into Lord of the Rings or Aragorn, uh, he charges into battle and he's just like the only guy. He's right there at the pack or, or even the, in, in the Marvel Cinematic Universe when we've got T'Challa uh, just running headfirst. He's leading the, the pack, right? There's something about a king saying, it's my responsibility. This is my kingdom. This is my people charging headlong first in the battle, first to fight. That always just makes me uh, emotional. I mean, every single time uh, I just, I cry. I don't know why. It just makes me, uh, there's just something rich about that that imagery, right? There's something rich and something powerful, powerful about a king, a ruler, someone who uh, we are responsible for, if we are the subjects of the king, uh, to really give respect to and, and reverence and, and obedience and to know that our leader, our king, is charging first headlong into battle. It makes it so much easier to follow. It makes it so much easier. It gives me so much confidence knowing that whatever's on the other side of that line, my king's in front of me, and I know that it's going to be okay, right? Death or life or anything in between, King Jesus is leading the charge, and that's going to make it okay. See, King Jesus, he came to suffer and to serve, except the incredible reality of King Jesus leading the charge is that there was no army behind him. None of us were in line behind him, chasing or pursuing and running headlong into battle. He did it himself. He led the charge by himself. This is an incredible king. He went to battle by himself against sin and death, and he did it for you. He did it for me. He, he is our king that says, these are my people. These are the people that I care for and I love and I want to serve. And because of that, I'm going to charge headlong into battle and I'm going to do whatever it takes to make sure that my kingdom is established, that my kingdom and my people are taken care of. Even this scene really, it calls back to mind at first Samuel chapter 17, Verse 16, David and Goliath, right? There's this reality in 1 Samuel 17, 16. It says, for 40 days, the Philistine came forward and took his hand morning and evening. There's this reality in which this Philistine giant, he's mocking God. He's mocking the nation of Israel. And who steps up to bat? Nobody wants to fight him. Nobody wants to go to battle. Nobody wants to be the first in line. And it certainly wasn't the king. The king wasn't going to, to battle this guy. The king wasn't going to slay Goliath, to slay the giant. And who steps up to bat? David. David comes by himself, stands up in front of the giant, ultimately slays that giant and serves as a picture for us of what King Jesus would do. King Jesus stood by himself in the wilderness, even at the beginning of his ministry, battling against evil, battling against Satan, battling against really the the imagery that we see of the Exodus that we'll get to. King Jesus leads the charge and he's got no backup. He did all of the work himself. And where does he go? He goes headlong into the wilderness. And the wilderness is a place that's meant to to call to mind Exodus imagery. So in the book of Exodus, that's really the story about the Israelites being delivered by God out of slavery to the Egyptians. And so in the Gospel of Mark particularly, he uses a lot of Exodus imagery, a lot of imagery of King Jesus kind of being a new type of Moses that delivers his people out of bondage and out, out of slavery. He says the wilderness, right, is meant to, it's meant to call to mind Exodus 
imagery. In the wilderness, it was often associated with hunger. It was associated with isolation. It was associated with difficulty. But it was also a place where God would meet the Israelites where God would come, he would provide for them, he would protect them, he would deliver them, he would care for them in the wilderness in the midst of their isolation and their difficulty. And as Jesus is crowned king, the long-awaited Messiah, instead of a royal banquet or a big grand party, party, he willingly launches himself into a reality of suffering meant to foreshadow his future conquest of the wilderness that we all face of our sin once and for all on the cross. See, Jesus goes into the wilderness really to, to picture the, the deliverance that is to come at the end of this gospel by him dying on the cross, by him receiving the, the, the penalty of your sin by a holy God. And there's a new exodus that's going to happen where King Jesus comes on the scene. He's going to come into the wilderness where we all are in our sin, in isolation from God, and he's going to deliver us as the king. In triumphal procession, he has made all of the preparations. He has accomplished all the work. He has fought the fight. He has won the battle and he ascends to the throne. He's currently seated at the right hand of the father and he delivers us. If you place your faith and trust in him out of the wilderness, that's the picture that we see immediately. He he is driven by the spirit to the wilderness again, as a foreshadowing of what is to come. Jesus came to deliver us from bondage and slavery to our sin. As we close this evening, there's a, there's a, uh, a hymn that uh, I uh, that I love. There's a it's a short, uh, just a couple of verses, but I want to read it to you. This is our uh, response as we think about King Jesus. As we think about preparing our hearts, trusting that Jesus truly is the King, His authentication from His baptism, and cherishing the reality that our King, He came to suffer for us. He's not some king that rules with an iron fist, uh, with his boots to our throat. He's a king that lowers himself, humbles himself, suffers on our behalf, and serves us so that we might have a relationship with you. And so the words go like this, I love you, Lord, and I lift my voice. To worship you, O my soul, rejoice. It says, take joy, my king, King Jesus, in what you hear. May it be a sweet, sweet sound in your ear. And my prayer for you this evening as students is that you would truly come face to face with the King, King Jesus, that your heart would be prepared and that you would cherish the type of King that we have been given, a King that would lower himself from a God to a man and not just a man, but someone that would go into the wilderness and go to the cross and do all of this difficult, incredibly painful things for you and for me. That's a King that I'm ready and willing to follow. And my prayer is that you would be too. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your words in the gospel of Mark. Father, thank you uh, just that we have uh, just a confidence in Jesus as the king. So, Father, I pray that as we discuss briefly tonight uh, that the reality of preparing our hearts and cherishing King Jesus, I pray that you would impress these truths onto the hearts of the students here. I pray that we would really leave this place with, with a sense of reverence and awe and humility in the face of King Jesus and that we'd be ready and excited to follow him because he was one who stood charging into battle with no backup, with us not standing behind him, and he did it for us. 
He, he came to this earth. He suffered incredibly so. He died on the cross. He served us in so many different ways. And so, Father, I pray that we would respond to those truths with repentance and faith. I pray that we would confess our sin. We would submit to Christ. I pray that that would be something that would bring us joy and that we would bring you joy, Father. Take joy, my King, in what you hear and what you see from our lives. I pray these things in your Son's name. Amen. All right, let's break up into small groups. If you can grab your chair on the way down.